0: Right? <laughs> That's how you can match it up. <laughs> hey, guys, welcome back. This is Tom from the Progressive Mind Center podcast, and I'm here with a good friend of mine, a colleague, uh, Mr. Mark Sears. He is a licensed mental health therapist and he really specializes in addictions amongst many other things and so today we're doing the addictions and recovery podcast part two. First one was with um, my friend michael wright and so uh, mark is actually going to share his uh experience and some of the things he's viewed and kind of camping on to uh part one um so thanks again for joining us please feel free to leave a review and to sub- subscribe so that you can uh um get the latest uh, episodes. Without further ado, my friend. Yes.
1: Well I you know, it's tough to know where to start when you're talking about addictions and recovery. Um I've worked with a lot of different people. I've worked in actual addiction centers in the past. Um for two years I did groups at an addiction center, which was always interesting. Uh and I do an ongoing um recovery group for the past two years with four men that have been in recovery and doing pretty well. So I'm trying to think of where you guys or some of the things that you touched on so we don't repeat too much from last time. Um, I mean, one of the things I thought would be good to talk about are, um, is dysfunctional coping, you know, leading to addiction. Um, and one of the f- things I really like to talk about is what I call the last addiction. Um, the last addiction idea comes from a book by a woman named Sharon Hirsch, who uh, teaches addiction at two different universities. Uh, the idea of the last addiction is that we're our last addiction. The idea that we can do it alone or do it ourselves, um, or that we have to do it ourselves and not being able to ask for help. And I don't know, I'm sure you've experienced that with people you've worked with as well. Right?
0: yeah absolutely i mean um you could even say that somewhat there is a, a stubbornness that comes with uh with having an addiction and um and a pride and so mm-hmm. I guess what I'm really driving at is that um the the people who have uh, an addiction it there's still somewhat of a denial that it is a disorder or a disease within them mm-hmm. and that it's something that they have to manage for the rest of their lives. Right. So there's this concept of in recovery where you call it stinking thinking and uh, even years after being um, sober and even having a productive life, there's people that still engage in uh, stinking thinking and addictive-type thinking, that their behaviors, even if they're not as harmful as they were uh, with regards to the addiction, um, they're still um, not engaging in healthy, uh, productive behaviors.
1: Right. I, I, you know, one of the outstanding books I thought that um, I read in a documentary is the Russell Brand book, and he talks about that. He talks about not necessarily just stinking thinking, but how he continues to live out the 12 steps day by day just to avoid that type of that type of trap. I mean, it does become a trap. And I've run across many people that for example a client some time ago that uh, although she had been sober for 8 years and had many years trapped in addiction uh the way she handled life the way she handled relationships really was in an in an addictive manner i mean in the kind of thinking and rationalizations and I don't know just all types of things you could see that she was stuck in that still stuck in that right. addictive thinking
0: and lying and omitting things you right. know right. um even if she didn't feel like you know or or addicts not feeling like they're purposely trying to uh um harm someone else they do
1: right right they definitely do um that thought I was trying to well think of...
0: well that uh addictive behavior even if they're not actively using um could lead to a relapse
1: right oh yeah that, i mean that's the and that's the danger i mean. This idea of I, I have to do it on my own or I think many times we work with people that, um, you know, they they want it badly. And I think that's one of the misunderstandings of people that, as addicts would call normies or people that don't really understand addiction, that it's a willful choice. Uh, you know, why can't they just stay sober? Why can't they do this? Well, they get into this, the, that stinking thinking and that that mindset that, OK, I have to do it my way. Uh, they rationalize going back and doing the same types of behaviors. They rationalize, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I had a had a gentleman that after multiple times in his sixties, going back to rehabs and whatnot, every time he would get well and have a little bit of sobriety, he would come back and he would just convince himself he had to go back to do the same types of things with the same types of people and would end up relapsing over and over again. Um, and then he gets upset when, you know, he has no direction he feels lost and then he starts picking up a bottle again and, and just crashes and burns.
0: Going to that level of comfort that, uh, he once had or that addicts had, you know, when you're overwhelmed and you're kind of at at that place where you feel like nobody is supporting me and nobody's helping. And look, you know, the, the addict person, how many times and how many stories have you heard? Well, how many times have you been to treatment? Well, this is my 31st time in treatment. So each time, you (laughs) know, from the very beginning, it's like you you talk to your family, your friends, you you know, I I need help. You go into uh, treatment, I need help. And there's all these these people there to help and support you and isolated away from your substance and talking about it with like-minded people who have similar problems. I can do this. I can be sober. I can, I can fight this. Then you go back out to the world. (laughs) Yeah, you got it. Yeah. That, that's when we were talking about that the other night. Um, then you go out to the real world, so to speak again, and you're faced with all the same temptations. You still have the same addictive behaviors, the same, um, manipulation, the same kind of lying, the same types of relationships and, you know, places and things. Yeah. And you're triggered and Mm -hmm. alcohol, Other drugs, they work. So how many times has that addict who's been in and out of recovery 30 plus times, you know, how many times have they asked for help? And each time the family members become a little bit more despondent and a Mm -hmm. little bit more like, Yeah, right. You know, at first, yeah, we're we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it together, you know, and whatever we need to do to help support family meetings us changing our lifestyle, you know, and then they continue to relapse over and over and over again. So it's like when the addict or the um, alcoholic comes and says, all right, it's my 31st time, I I need help. (laughs) The family's like, well, uh, (laughs) good luck.
1: And and I've seen the opposite as well, too, where families, where somebody keeps relapsing and families don't understand that, you know, that enabling and that codependency aspect of it, um, where they try to fix or that person Like, if we could just fix this person, our family would be okay. And um, I can tell you how many times I've been faced with parents. I mean, I can think of a time talking to a guy in his 70s. He and his wife had nice retirement, still trying to find that perfect rehab for his daughter who was 42 and couldn't stop using heroin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, oftentimes, as tough as it is, and, you know, you can't answer that for any parent or any spouse of when is that time that I have to cut this person loose to fully crash and burn to get the help that they need and take it seriously. Right. And it's not that they don't take it seriously before that, but they know that they have a safety net and they go, oh, well, you know, they get into that, that, that thinking, the stinking thinking, uh, I'll talk about something about that, more about that in a second. Um, they get into that, that mindset and they just say, F it. They say, Mm -hmm. you know, well, everybody's treating me like I'm an alcoholic or I'm a, I'm a drug addict. You know, my family hasn't changed. You know, they're still treating me this way. Effort. it. I, I'm just going to pick up. Right. Uh, the thought I had was um, one of the favorite groups I used to do um, was my list I called the effort list, um, better known as cognitive, cognitive, cognitive. Now I can't think of it. <laughs> Common, right. okay. no, there, yeah. it is. there it is. Common cognitive distortions. Uh-huh. And,
0: um, I mean like generalizing and using
1: catastrophizing
0: uh, always or never, always and never absolutes,
1: absolutes. Yeah. There's a whole list of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you hand that out to a group of 30 people and you say, which one of these, you know, do you feel like you do a lot of, and I can't tell you how many times people raise their hands and they'll say, I do all these, Mm -hmm. you know, and we talk about. You know, how do you change that thinking is important. It's not just to be aware of it, but how to change it as well. Yeah. Changing that negative thinking that's going to lead you to say, F it. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Well, so what are some ways that you teach uh, uh, addicts or alcoholics that are in recovery how to change that?
1: I used to combine it with a thing about challenging negative thoughts. I mean, you know, what evidence do I have for this thought? What I wish I had brought some of that with me, but we can do that another time. You know, it's helping people and enabling people. And I think, you know, with the kind of work you do with with hypnotherapy and, you know, post-hypnotic suggestions of getting people to um, not be anxious, think in a positive way, Mm -hmm. because the more negative our brain becomes, the more negative we become. And, you know, we have a tendency to go towards the negative anyway as human beings. And anything we can do to to help ourselves be self-aware, self-reflect, I think meditation helps. But I think it's just, I used to hand out this 10 point list of challenging a negative thought. And sometimes to me, handouts and whatnot are a little bit hokey and I wonder if people are going to really take to them. What I found over time is some of these people were taking out of these groups, they were taking these things home and, you know, folding them up, putting them in their pocket and carrying around with it, putting it up on the refrigerator, on the wall of their bedroom Mm -hmm. Uh, because they were really, it's a real struggle sometimes to stay out of that negative thinking. Uh, and to recognize it when it's happening, and it's difficult to stop.
0: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I use that technique a lot uh, in uh, my practice. Um, it, it the elements are cognitive behavioral therapy or rational emotive right. behavioral therapy. therapy uh, yes. um, show me the evidence to support that. You know, to challenge that negative thought mm-hmm. uh, or negative thought pattern. Um, and it's not just for people who have an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it's anybody, I, I think we're all guilty of focusing on uh negative thoughts in our lives. That we all play those negative uh self talk tapes yes. uh, to ourselves, we compare ourselves uh, to others. And um, a uh, previous podcast uh, had talking about um, how we start hearing uh, judgments come from our family members and from uh, friends, peers. Mm -hmm. And those voices, those judgments really become our own. And then it's hard for us to uh, delineate or decipher which is our true voice and which is, you know, the voice we had heard from our parents or from, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, peers and all the negative judgment. Uh, But nonetheless, we still have these negative thoughts and they lead to negative feelings. And then we react to them and then it just creates this vicious cycle. Um, It's much more difficult to change our feelings once you get angry or once you're sad, you know, or even when you're happy, uh, it's very difficult to change it. Um, but it's much easier to change your thoughts with a little bit of help, with a little bit of coaching and some of the right techniques. Um, unfortunately to bring this back to addictions, um, alcohol and drugs, especially illicit or illegal drugs, um, they instantly change how you feel. Yes. bypassing the need yes. to work on actually changing your thoughts, uh, in particular your negative thoughts. So you never, the, the addict never really learns uh, how to do that or how to cope with it. In fact, yep. there's a common um, uh, concept in uh, addictions and recovery where you look at, well, when did the person first start using, oh, 14 or 15, you know. Yeah. And then you say, well, that that's sort of their emotional um intelligence or their emotional age, you know, mm-hmm. that they never, oh, yeah. if they started using, especially abusing and uh, maybe even gotten to a level of dependence by the time they were age 20, mm-hmm. they had all that time during their adolescence where they weren't learning how to manage their emotions. They weren't learning positive ways of coping with life. And now at 40 or, you know, when they're trying to to be sober and all the, they're flooded with all these emotions they don't know how to flip and deal with them.
1: No. I mean, I I saw that over and over again in treatment, um, especially dealing largely with the population in the early 20s uh, that, you know, had developed serious addiction by the time, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. And they were at that emotional age. I mean, they had not learned to cope with being an adult. I mean, I still remember one young lady telling me that, That uh, being an adult sucks because she couldn't handle even applying for a job. She had no idea how to do any of those things Mm -hmm. or deal with the emotions surrounding that um, of rejection of, you know, failure or believing that she was going to fail. Uh, But yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely stay stuck in that. That inability to cope, that immaturity. um, And you see it over and over again i mean i I've seen it with people like I said, as old as being in their sixties that spend a lifetime drinking mm-hmm. that still handle issues and problems like they were a young teenager, an adolescent
0: so and their ability to tolerate stress um mm-hmm. is supremely diminished, and mm-hmm. so that's another thing that we uh, that we have to do as therapists is help people with distress tolerance
1: yeah um you know, you think of what happens to the brain, and you know, I'm no brain scientist, but the the research I do and the things that I read and talking about the the attic brain and what happens in the negative thinking, I mean, we have to use any tools that we can to help people turn that around. And I really do believe that you know, with you know, the brain has plasticity, you can get people to start thinking positively. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate in, in one of the uh, men in my men's group is early on in in his recovery with me he um and again he had been to treatment multiple times and finally in his mid late 30s decided hey wait this is enough i got to i have to really change this and he caught on to the idea early on cuz one one day i was sitting there I was, I was saying you know you really have to and in the rooms they call it attitude of gratitude but you know how do you apply that you know how do you make that happen so what I asked him to do was to, um, every night before he went to bed, is to write down just three things that he was thankful or grateful for. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want you to write it because writing has more of an impact of just thinking about it and saying it. And I want you to read it out loud three times. Then I joke about putting it under your pillow because of osmosis and <laughs> things like <laughs> that. Yeah. Actually, that's what Mrs. Moschek, my third grade teacher, told me. That's how she told me to learn my multiplication tables, which didn't work. Mm. <laughs> but... uh Anyway, and then get up in the morning, and the first thing you do is read those three things again. And it doesn't have to be anything big or major. I'm thankful that I got up today. I'm thankful that I'm healthy today, that I didn't drink today. Mm -hmm. And slowly over time, it literally begins to change the brain. It begins to change thinking patterns. And one of the reasons for that is that parts of our brain and neural connectivity that we don't use... Um literally gets trimmed away at night those those neuronic or those neuron connections mm-hmm. I mean an example of that is if you think about if you've had different types of jobs um you know like i I've had more than one career, and I can remember uh one of those careers was, was working with plants and in nurseries indoors and outdoors, and I used to be able to walk outside and identify dozens of plants. If I walked outside right now, I probably couldn't name more than two or three. <laughs> right. You know, and that's because mm. the unused parts of the brain get trimmed away. Mm-hmm. Not that that memory is gone. Not that you couldn't recall it if you really tried or relearned it mm-hmm. or like learning a language and not using it. And then you have to go back and kind of relearn things. The same thing happens with negative thoughts. If we don't focus on the negative, especially before you're going to sleep, because that happens when you sleep, then starts to change and this is a young guy that he he brings us up over and over again periodically to the group when somebody's particularly down or whatnot and he talks about how much of a difference that just something that simple just having that attitude of gratitude Mm -hmm. has made a difference in his life yeah even in his struggle with his marriage yeah um so i think sometimes it's the simple things or things that seem simple that i really think have an impact
0: well, and I want to camp onto that, and uh, and in fact encourage uh, those of our listeners to do this very thing. So you, you were talking about writing down things you were grateful for in the evening time, and there's definitely a special connection that you have when you write something—a mm-hmm. neural, neurological connection. Right. Um, so write it, write these things down. You know, get a nice uh, notebook, journal, or what have you, and an, uh, a pen that you really like or something, and keep it close yeah. to the bed. <clears throat> and to write down uh, either three things you're grateful for or um uh three positive affirmations or three things that you oh, want to accomplish like right mm-hmm. so an example could be you know um i uh i am uh an athlete for <laughs> this is one that <laughs> i've actually used i'm i'm not necessarily an athlete uh however i've written that down as a positive affirmation because mm-hmm. to me uh, an athlete is somebody who takes care of their body, who eats right, who makes sure they get uh, appropriate rest, who practices their skill. You know, they go through the cycles, the macro and meso cycles of their training, you know, yeah. where m- maybe, you know, for a few weeks they're focused on strength uh, development. And then they're focused on skill uh, development and uh, endurance training. And then they actually focus on their their sport. <clears throat> But they, spe- they pay special attention to those things. So an athlete is somebody who uh, uh, focuses on, to the utmost, their health and wellness. And so by me writing that positive affirmation, I am an athlete. The next day, um, I find myself almost magically doing things that are healthier, making healthier choices. Mm-hmm. And it's because in the evening time especially, maybe like 30 minutes before you go to bed, Now, since I'm a hypnotist, you know, I I like the power of suggestion (laughs) and the subconscious mind. That's sort of the theater that I delve into. And 30 minutes before you go to sleep, you are in a naturally occurring hypnotic state where your conscious mind is no longer as active as it once was. And so you're not consciously processing things the way that you would. So your subconscious mind is coming into play and your subconscious mind is open to powerful suggestions especially healthy therapeutic suggestions so if you say uh i am grateful for these things you will be more grateful because you're planting that suggestion into your subconscious mind or i am healthy i am an athlete i am uh earning more money or you know
1: i mean for some people it's low self-esteem and addiction uh just simply saying i am enough I mm-hmm. think, and repeating that over and over make, can make a difference.
0: I love that. That's beautiful. I and, am enough.
1: And sometimes people, you know, these things sound simple or they sound stupid when you say them out loud. But, again, that's something you get used to doing, and it takes a hold. It's funny. You said you, the, the whole journal idea and writing it down and keeping it beside the bed. I had a guy one time show me. Uh, he had this journal and he had been actually writing something in that journal, things like that, things that he appreciated or things he was grateful for, or an affirmation, I think for like five or six years, hmm. almost every single night. Wow. I mean, just the power of that and how it changed his life. So
0: That's good action. No coffee. I think I'm addicted to uh, caffeine for sure. <laughs> That's my I, I, drug of choice right now. <clears throat> I, 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 I kick my addiction to
1: Starbucks double shot. <laughs> I just bought that instead.
0: Yeah.
1: So this whole idea, I think, of, you know, that I have to do it on my own, I think, is a trap. This idea of nobody can help me or I'm different than anybody else. I think this idea that I'm alone. I mean, that's touching on another aspect of that. um, You know, I'm I'm aware that not, you know, the rooms, AA, NA, those types of things are not for everybody. I mean, sometimes you can tell when somebody's making an excuse. but I always encourage people, and this is what I used to tell the groups all the time. I mean, it was like beating a dead horse sometimes, but they, I think they appreciated it, was that even if you go to AA, NA for a while, if you're early in recovery, and it's more about community, it's more about connecting with people. And I would say, find two or three people, your own sex, of course, that you connect with and meet with them outside of AA on a regular basis. You know, I had a good friend that, that one of the things I think helped him most, like well, he said, helped him the most that for years, and this was his second time of 10 years of recovery. He said the one thing that made a difference for him this time was the fact that he had three guys that he met with on a weekly basis for breakfast or sometime during the week. Mm-hmm. And just talk about life. You don't necessarily just sit there and talk about recovery. You you talk about life mm-hmm. and you share things with, you grow, you have trust that you grow. But I think isolation you know as well as I do that isolation is like one of the deadliest traps for somebody that's trapped in addiction mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, have a successful recovery. Um,
0: well, I think that's why we're hearing more and more about uh, addictions recently, right and why the numbers have gone up because we have been isolating, uh, quarantining because mm-hmm. of this uh, virus thing. And so I, I'm really wondering, like, uh, have, have you run into that with uh, clients that maybe were um, showing signs of improvement or, you know, actually finding it easier to cope with life and uh, live life on life's terms and, and not using and then the virus and then the uncertainty and confusion over the past few months because of this? Uh, have they relapsed or or have they been struggling in some way?
1: Yeah, I have a few people that are in recovery that are struggling with <clears> isolation. <throat> One in particular – Um, I think, I mean, the the things I've been reading and talking to others about, yes, that increased isolation and the quarantine with the whole coronavirus, I think, has seen a definite uh, spike in addictions. Uh, It's seen a huge spike, which I don't know how many numbers are really out about this, but, you know, people are talking about a huge spike in overdose deaths. Um, So it is a danger, and I think, for a lot of people right now during this time of quarantine, I mean, I, you know, I've also known people that to avoid that have gotten really creative. Like when they shut down some of the AA venues, um, there's the, uh, I know there's a men's meeting here in Vero that they started meeting at a park, mm-hmm. you know, and to keep that going because for some people that sense of community, uh, is not going to be found in a, in a zoom meeting or unfortunately, right. uh, you know, you're not going to make that connection. No. And so, I think people have to get creative with that um that aspect of recovery or mental- you know just dealing with their mental health you know? yeah so that's a good point it is it is you know, I think we haven't even seen the beginning of you know the outcomes of this last what five months of people being quarantined and yeah you know, sometimes afraid you're right so yeah. so is there anything else you can? think of we can touch on today
0: yeah i think um i just want to spend a few moments uh briefly uh, mentioning that if you feel like you uh or a loved one uh, somebody that you know that you care about uh is in trouble whether it's with addictions or whether it's with uh depression or uh, anxiety. anxiety or anything yeah. um please uh reach out and get help even if uh, that causes um Uh, some negative judgment because you're the one reaching out or because you feel like you're going to uh, harm a a friendship or relationship because of it. Uh, Do not worry about that, that you can make amends. You can repair those relationships or you can rise above the uh, negative judgments that it's more important to reach out and get help uh, for yourself or for someone else. Um, And uh, please, you can contact uh, Mark or myself um please. I'll put uh ways to contact both of us in the uh um uh, show notes and uh I want you to be able to reach out to us or somebody else that you uh trust or even clergy um please go uh go and find uh, help for yourself or for someone else. We really appreciate you guys listening uh any um uh following uh, remarks or burning desires.
1: Uh I am just thinking that uh you know Let's do another one of these, and I'd like to get feedback from people on if they would like to hear some things about the spirituality of mm-hmm. recovery. Yeah, and talk about that a little bit because I think that's always a good, perfect good topic to talk about.
0: I love it. I think it's really important.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, thank you, guys, once again for for listening. We hope that you have a fantastic rest of the day. We'll see you again. Thank Take you, care. Tom.